He is risen. Amen. So this morning, here we are on the high, really the high holy day of Christianity. We love to celebrate Christmas, and I think the reason is because we get presents. But really, if you read the scripture, if you read the story, this is it. Easter is what it's all about. The resurrection of our king, the life of King Jesus who died and took on our sins and paid for them and and the grave death could not hold him down. He would not stay there. So he is risen. risen One more time, let's try that again. I caught you off guard. He is risen. risen Amen. I wanna just say thank you to a few people. Um, This year has been the year of illness for, for me, for our family and we had COVID for a couple weeks and And then we got this other infection. And so if I cough today, I'm not giving you COVID. I'm giving you something else. Uh, So don't worry about it. You know, it's fine. Um, And so I want to thank Dr. Noah for jumping in the pulpit last week and filling in for me uh, because I couldn't speak. And it's been a little bit tentative on whether or not my voice would even work today. So thanks for those of you who've been praying for me. And I've got water and lozenges ready to go today. Um, And I want to thank those as well who really stepped in and have um, used their gifts for the sake of the body this last week. Um, I don't know if you uh, went to the Seder dinner or if you were part of the Good Friday experience, but we had a lot of people, Ethan, Melissa, the Stin Camps, others, who just leaned in and cared for the body and did some pretty amazing things. And so I want to thank you guys for, for your work on each of those things. Matt this morning, uh, Judy and the choir that's not a choir was beautiful. Thank you for sharing with us. And I'm just very grateful for God giving us uh, a body full of people who are gifted and, and use those gifts to love the body. If you're a visitor with us today, we're just so glad that you're here. Uh, we are a family, a church that we consider ourselves family, and you're welcome to the family. Uh, we're, welcome that, we're glad that you're here with us today. And if you want to stick around after today, we'd love for you to, to stick around as well. My name's Mike, and I'm the, the lead pastor here. And we're going to we're going to jump into John chapter 20 this morning. You've, we've read it from beginning to end throughout the service. And what this chapter does is it introduces us to several characters. And, and Matt uh, introduced us very well to one of them. Uh, but we have a few other characters that I want to talk about too and look at their stories. And in his infinite wisdom... Um, When God gave us the Bible, when he gave us the New Testament, he gifted us with four very unique but complementary stories or pictures or tellings of the life of Jesus, and specifically four versions of what happened on that first Easter Sunday when Jesus rose from the grave. We have Matthew's version and Mark's version and Luke's version, and today we read John's version. And I think there's a few reasons why God gave us four gospels, four versions of the story. One is, is because sometimes the first time God says something to us, we're too daft to hear it. And so he has to repeat himself. And with Jesus's life, he knew that we needed to hear it four times to be able to have it break through. But I think even more important than that is that different eyewitnesses experienced Jesus in different ways. We heard perhaps how Thomas experienced Jesus in his interaction with following him. But as they experienced different ways, Jesus in different ways, these life-changing events in different ways, each of them offers, as they tell this story, unique insight 
from a particular view, complete with all of their individual impressions and emotions and remembrances from those who experienced it, whether they witnessed it firsthand or they spoke to others who had seen Jesus raised from the dead. So, so this, re- this morning as we come to John chapter 20, this is, in my opinion, the most beautifully written it's hard to say most meaningful, but personally most meaningful, most inspirational of the four accounts of that first Easter Sunday. And you can disagree with me on that, but what I want to look at is John's precise, his, his precise descriptions and the colorful ways that, that this narrative brings about a picture that, that works to transport us in time and place all the way back into that garden, all the way back to that tomb. Gives us a picture of the the awe and the wonder that these individuals felt in the moment, or the, the confusion and the grief that they were going through as eyewitnesses experiencing this life changing, earth shattering morning, the first Easter. Here's just one example of how uh, John himself, who this is how this is what John called himself throughout his gospel. He wrote this gospel. He was one of the twelve followers of Jesus, as Thomas said. He's one of those three that that got to go and do cool things with Jesus, like up on that mountain. He called himself, and I, I don't think this is arrogant, but it sounds arrogant. He called himself the disciple whom Jesus loved, right? Which is kind of like the other eleven. Eh, me, Jesus really liked me. I was his. Favorite. But he called himself the d- disciple whom Jesus loved, which was really his identity. He understood who he was, that, that, God, that Jesus loved him. But he includes details in the story like this. You all know somebody who loves to tell stories, like they tell stories about their, experience, their fishing trips, probably. And they add all sorts of details that don't really help the story or the, don't really move the story of long, but they're colorful details that help you, help you understand and be there. So here, here, for example, is something that John says in verses three and four of John chapter 20. Mary Magdalene goes and gets John and Peter, and then they go to the tomb. And it says, so Peter went out with the other disciple, that's John, the one who Jesus loves, and they were going toward the tomb. Both of them were running together. Now listen to this. But the other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first. So, which is another way basically of John saying, okay, in a foot, ra- in a foot race, I beat Peter 10 times out of 10, just to let you know. <laughs> and I don't, know, I don't think it's pride, but these are the kind of details that even though they're not really crucial to the story, they give us a picture that this is a story that was written by somebody that was there. This is a story written by an eyewitness, someone who experienced all this and was a pretty good runner, pretty fast. Now, of course, these two men really were only at the tomb because someone else, a woman, Mary Magdalene, and several other women who aren't mentioned in this account, but they're mentioned in the other Gospels, had been there first. In fact, they'd come to the tomb before the sun was even up that morning, and they'd come ready, really, to prepare Jesus' body with, with perfumes and ointments, uh, prepare it for burial, because they weren't able to do that after he was crucified on Friday night, because the sun had gone down, marking the beginning of the Sabbath day. 
So the accounts of Matthew, Mark, and Luke, they they convey stories on Easter morning that include earthquakes and angels moving stones away from the tomb and sitting on top of the stones and talking to the women. But when we get to this account of Mary and how she experienced it, it's almost like she had been oblivious to all of those huge earth-shattering things that had happened. According to John, Mary Magdalene was laser-focused on one thing. She meant, she's so focused on it, she mentions it three times in verses 2, 13, and 15. And she says something like this. The body of Jesus is missing. I need to find it. That's all she cares about is this dead body so that she can take care of it. That was the only thing that seemed to matter to her. So she's at the tomb. It's empty. Jesus' body is gone. And she runs and tells John and Peter. She's not running to tell them, look, the Lord is risen again. She's running to enlist their help to come and find the body so that she can take care of it. So in verses 5 and 7 then, John and uh, John and Peter have this race. John gets to the, to the tomb first. In verses 5 and 7, the story moves from outside the tomb to inside the tomb. And it's almost like we've come across a crime scene. John arrives and he looks in, he stoops down, looks in, and all he sees left in the tomb are these grave clothes. No body, just grave clothes. And then Peter, several seconds or minutes, who knows, later arrives and he just bursts into the tomb, barges into the tomb, looks around, he sees the grave clothes. And one other thing he sees, and I love this detail, is the face cloth that was on Jesus' body had been taken off and it had been carefully folded and it had been set aside. So think about what might have been going through the minds of these two men. Okay, Mary had told them they took the body of Jesus. But when Peter and John arrive on the scene, Going in there and seeing nothing but grave clothes, wouldn't you think, what kind of grave robbers would take a naked dead body and leave the clothes? Like, why would you do that? It's gross. Like, at least, you know, use the claws. And who in the world, in robbing a grave, would take the time to fold up part of those grave clothes and set it nicely to the side like they were doing somebody's laundry? You can imagine that things aren't making sense to them. What is Peter thinking as he, as he surveys the tomb? What, what's going on in Mary's heart? Because she's, she'd come too back to the tomb. What's going on in her heart and mind as she arrives a second time? The body's still not there. The tomb is still empty. And, and we're told that she's waiting outside the tomb, distraught and weeping, unable to focus still on anything but that missing body. We're not given the answers to these questions for Peter and and Mary specifically. We're simply invited to to place ourselves in their shoes. Now John, because he's writing, he actually does give us his answer of what's going on. He, He gives us some insight into what was happening in his mind and in his heart. In verse eight, he writes this. It says, then the other disciple who had reached the tomb first, that is, in other words, the fast one, John, the other disciple who had reached the tomb first also went in and he saw and believed. And again, I don't think John is bragging here. I think he's simply just conveying the reality of what happened in his heart and mind 
in that moment. He's simply reporting his experience. So while Peter was perhaps puzzling and trying to figure things out and Mary was outside weeping, John instantly understood and believed. And I think one of the, one of the pieces that John is giving as he, as he gives us this story is he's, he's trying to convey to us that there are a variety of responses to an empty tomb. That there are a variety of ways to, to experience Jesus' resurrection. And we're invited into this story to realize that we won't all experience Jesus in the same way, and we all won't respond to Jesus in the same way. We all approach the reality of an empty tomb in our own way. We notice different things. Some of us, like John, find faith easy. We quickly go to belief and trust and faith in Jesus. Others are more skeptical. Hmm, not sure about that, Thomas. Some of us are distracted, like Mary. Can't, I mean, she's ugly crying, right? Can't see a thing. Doesn't know anything that's going on except I've got to find that body. Others of us like her are in grief. But the point is that all of our stories, all of our experiences with Jesus are different, and that's okay. We don't have to be like John with quick belief, although some of us will be. So John had a heart ready to believe, even, even though verse nine, you look at verse nine, it, t- it tells us that the, the prospect of resurrection wasn't even on their radar. It says, for as yet they did not understand the scripture that he must rise from the dead. They didn't understand that that's what the Bible, the Old Testament had taught, that, that the Messiah would rise from the dead. So, so the 11 remaining disciples, they weren't back in, in the upper room with the doors locked waiting for Sunday morning to come around so that Jesus would be resurrected. That was not on their radar that that was Jesus' end game. That no matter, no, no matter what they were thinking, their expectation was not resurrection. So, so it's easy for Mary to, to think, I've got to find this dead body it's easy for Peter to wonder what kind of lunatic grave robber leaves the, the clothes like this. And maybe it wasn't so easy for John to see and instantly believe. Some of us will be able to do that. Others of us won't. So that's John. Perhaps, perhaps you identify with John. I won't spend a lot of time on Peter here because His story actually figures prominently in the very next chapter of John, John chapter 21. And so if if in some way you identify with Peter here, I'd encourage you to go read John chapter 21. Peter arrives at the tomb, and it's almost, Peter's the guy that takes charge all the time, right? He's the the one who's always speaking speaking and acting before he thinks. He's the one that that barges into the tomb, and kind of like the lead detective, he immediately takes charge charge of the, of the crime scene. You can imagine him thinking to himself, I'm going to figure out who took the body and get to the bottom of it. I'm going to figure out what has happened here. I'm going to find an answer. But unlike John, we're not told that Peter instantly believes. It just says in verse 10 that he and John go home and they leave Mary at the tomb. Now, if you know Peter's story, 
It's easy to imagine that what's going on in Peter is something akin to guilt and shame. I mean, less than 48 hours before, Peter had denied three times that he even knew Jesus. He was weak. He abandoned and denied Jesus in his moment of need. And and if his mind and heart are even considering that Jesus had risen from the grave, it's likely that he doesn't feel worthy to believe. Peter might reason, if Jesus did rise again, there's no reason that he would have anything to do with me. Peter's the exemplar of many of us who feel like we've simply aren't good enough or we've let God down or we failed him or we're dirty, we're sinful, we're worthless. God might love everyone else, but there's no way he could love me. I've done too much. I've turned my back on him too many times. So so for Peter to, to make the assumption that perhaps there's hope for him, Even for a reject and a failure like him, that's that's a chasm that's too wide to cross. And there's probably part of Peter going like, hey, if if Jesus is alive, I sure don't want to go talk to him. What's he going to say to me? Well, if you want to find out the answer to that question, go to John 21 and read that because it's a beautiful response. So perhaps you identify with Peter, a failure, someone who's, turn their back on Jesus and feels the guilt and shame and the rejection. But Peter and John are not the central focus of this narrative. They're not the the main characters here. Jesus is the main character, but the other main characters, shockingly, for for an account written in the first century in in the ancient Near East, a woman figures prominently in the center of this story. And so we find Mary Magdalene Outside the grave, weeping as the men leave the scene of the crime. And as we've seen, her focus is laser sharp. Out of, out of devotion for her, to her crucified Lord, she simply wants to find Jesus' body and take care of it. She wants to honor him in his death. She wants to do the last kind and generous and hospitable act that she can for him. Her mind and heart are stuck there in that, in that place of mourning, and she literally, literally, I mean, think about when you ugly cry, right? You can't see past your tears. You can't get through them. And if you're a fan of you 2 like me, you might put it like this. She got herself stuck at a funeral, and she can't get out of it. Does anybody remember that song? Anybody? Matt Fisher remembers you 2 Good job. So when she finally does take the opportunity then to survey the tomb, she stoops down and looks inside of it, she gets to see something that Peter and John didn't get to see. All they got was grave clothes. Mary looks in and she sees two angels. One of them sitting on one side of where Jesus had been laid, the other at the foot, the head and the foot, and by the way, the theological significance, I don't have time to go into that, but it's amazing. So when she sees these angels, it doesn't dawn on her who they are. It doesn't dawn on her her what they are. And it's telling that when they see her, they simply ask her a question. And it's the same question that Jesus will ask her a, a couple verses later. So verse 13, they say, woman, why are you weeping? Jesus will say the same thing in verse 15. 
And and that repeated question, the, the fact that that question gets asked twice should point us to the fact that she shouldn't be weeping. She shouldn't be weeping because even though she's at a tomb, she's not at a funeral. But she thinks she's at a funeral. She's still so focused on the missing body, which is causing her to to weep and ugly cry, that when she turns and and runs into Jesus, she runs into him, she can't even see who he really is through all the tears and snot and all the other things that come with that. So Jesus calmly asks her the same question, woman, why are you weeping? And then perhaps the more pointed, perfect question for each of us, whom... Are you seeking? And her her answer, the third time she says this, I'm looking for the dead body of Jesus. I'm looking for his body. They took it. If you moved it, will you just tell me where it's at? In other words, I'm trying to have a funeral, a proper funeral, and somebody stole the corpse. She's looking for Jesus, but she's looking for the wrong Jesus. She's looking for a dead Jesus. But that's not the Jesus who's present with her, who's present for her, who's standing right in front of her. Jesus wants to give her, and he wants to give each of us something better than what we're looking for. Sometimes when we want a funeral, Jesus wants to invite us to a wedding, a party, and we just want it our way. It's stunning then, then in verse 16, Mary's, her, her aha moment, the, the moment when the, the visors kind of come off and she sees how things are, when her world changes, is the moment that Jesus calls her by name. Mary. Mary. Purposeful, intimate, personal. Mary. And when he says her name... Her eyes are open and everything is changed. Her entire reality gets reoriented and it's simply Jesus saying her name that does it all. And the story of the Bible is the story of God over and over and over again calling people by their names. In the garden after Adam and Eve sinned, God walks in the garden and he says, Adam, where are you? He calls Abram, renames him Abraham, calls him to himself, and over and over and over again, he calls his people by name. And when God calls us by name and we hear it, that changes everything. But the problem, though, is if you know the story, is that throughout the story, people are too busy too distracted, too self-centered to hear his voice. We get get focused on our own lives. We get encumbered with our own schedules. We get enamored with all of our own priorities and pet projects. We tell Jesus that he means so much to to us, to me, that he, but then we end up scheduling him right out of our lives and we give him less attention than he deserves. And then we wonder why we can't hear him. Jesus, I'm not listening. Why can't I hear your voice? We wonder why he seems to never speak to or guide us. Why he he always seems absent or quiet from our lives. Sure, 
Sure, there are times in our lives when, when God just bursts in and we know it and we hear it and we see it. He breaks through dramatically. And that could be through times of pain and tragedy. It could be through times of great blessing and spiritual awareness, times when things just seem clear and true. And that's what happens here with Mary. He breaks in with his voice, speaking her name. Those times are rare. The times when we hear clearly are rare. But hear this, that Jesus is always speaking your name. He's always calling you. He's always turned towards you, pursuing you. And thankfully, he's generous and he's patient with us. He'll let us go our own way. He'll let us pursue our own dreams, our own agendas, build our own life, sideline him indefinitely. But I promise you that if you were to stop and regularly give Jesus the time of day, regularly pull out the earplugs and say, I want to hear, if you give him your attention, you'll be surprised at the clarity of a quiet yet firm and loving voice calling your name and drawing you to himself and saying, can I just reorient your world around me? Jesus is calling your name. In this story, Mary is, is kind of shocked into reality. It's, it's, it's like she was wearing a pair of VR goggles or something, and Jesus just rips them off, or he snaps his fingers and welcomes her back out of her hypnotic trance. He does it again simply by saying her name. And, and the, the first thing that Mary undoubtedly notices is that Jesus is alive, that Jesus is well, that he's standing there right in front of him. He, he's not dead. He's not sleeping. Now, sometimes we are dead or sleeping, but guess what? Jesus is never dead or sleeping anymore. He's standing right in front of us. He's speaking our names. He's reminding us of, of his invincible life and calling us into that new reality. And when Mary realizes who he is, her first natural response, get this, this is probably what we would do, she grabs onto him clings to him, probably on her knees, on her face, grabbing onto his feet or his clothes or something. Maybe, maybe just to make sure he's real. Part of her probably wants to hold on to him. Don't ever go away like that again. Like when your kids run out into traffic and they come back safe and you just hold on to them. Don't ever do that again. Don't ever leave. Don't ever get crucified. Don't ever die again. But here's what Jesus does. He actually tells her to let go. Because he says he's going back to the Father. His words, almost, they almost seem out of place. Don't cling to me. They almost seem harsh. God, Jesus, I'm just trying to give you a hug. Don't cling to me. And really, these words aren't harsh. They're not rebuking. His words are purposeful and loving. And sometimes, like Mary, we want to cling to Jesus in the wrong way. Which could mean, I think, one of a couple of things. Either, either we want to keep Jesus for ourselves, we want to hold him to ourselves, selfishly, or we want to tell Jesus exactly how he gets to be. We want to dictate the terms of his existence. And when I try to keep Jesus for myself, what I do is I use him to bring me comfort. I use Jesus to help me, to answer my prayers, to give me hope. And some of us take this mentality with Jesus. It's Jesus and me. 
where, where my faith is, is a private matter. It's between me and God, and it's just me and Jesus. But, but Jesus won't have this. He tells Mary to let go, and then he sends her, as, as one of the first missionaries, sends her to go and tell the disciples about the resurrection, to tell them that he has seen, that she has seen him alive. He won't let her keep him to herself. She has to share him. You can't cling to me. You got to give me away. You've got to go and tell others about who I am and what I've done. And so often as Christians, we're content just to keep Jesus to ourselves, to keep him in the room. But Jesus won't have it. Don't cling to me. Jesus, brothers and sisters, Jesus is too big for us to have him to ourselves. We have to share him. We have to tell we have to say our Lord is risen and that changes everything. Don't cling to Jesus and keep him to yourself. But the second thing we do when we cling to Jesus is we, we try to dictate the terms of his existence. What I do is I, I create kind of a false Jesus and I put him in this box. I say, Jesus, here's who you can be and here's what you can do. And mainly, you exist to serve my desires. Mary wanted Jesus to stay. Mary didn't want Jesus to ever go away again. And the first thing he says to, you, to her is like, I'm going away. I have to go away, and that's going to be good and right. She wanted things the way they were before he died, but Jesus isn't interested in giving Mary her idealized version of him. He wants to reorient her reality. He wants to reorient our realities around who he actually is. So she says to him, Rabboni, which means teacher. But Jesus says, I'm, I'm more than just a teacher. I am your teacher, but I'm more than just a teacher. I am the risen king. I'm the God of the universe, the eternal son, and I'm not sticking around here. I'm going to my rightful place at the right hand of God where I will rule over the universe forever. That's who I am. That's what I'll do. I don't fit into your box, so don't cling to me. Try to fit me into your idea of who I should be. You see, Jesus loves Mary too much to allow her to keep him to herself. He loves her too much to allow her to dictate the terms of his existence, who he is and what he can do. He loves us all too much to allow us to call the shots and define him. Jesus will be who Jesus will be. And we can submit to that and, and accept that, or we can continue to, to fight him on that and try to make him fit into our box. So perhaps in these things with Mary, you would identify with her. Maybe you identify with John, ready, willing to believe. Maybe you identify with Peter, who's stuck in failure and not willing or ready to find Jesus alive. Not, not, not wanting to meet a risen Jesus who, who's probably going to talk to him about how he failed. Not believing that you can be forgiven and actually used by King Jesus. 
Maybe identify with Mary looking for Jesus in all the wrong places. But longing, longing for him to, to speak your name and longing to hear him speak your name. Or maybe you identify with Thomas, which we're not gonna jump into because Matt did such a stellar job presenting him to us. Maybe you're like Thomas, who just, I've got to see, I've got to touch, I have to know, you've got to prove it to me. Who do you identify with? We want to give you just these three points to walk away with today. And the first is this, that I've, we kind of see in this story that Jesus will meet you where you are at. He doesn't ask you to get to a, to a certain level of, of holiness or going to church enough or doing the right things or cleaning up your act before he will meet you. He wants to meet you right where you are at, even if it's at the very bottom. This is his love, his grace, and his kindness towards you. The issue is that you've got to be willing to meet him. Secondly, this major question that Jesus asked to Mary is the question that we all have to ask of ourselves this morning, and it's simply this, whom are you seeking? Whom are you seeking? Sometimes we don't find what we're looking for, and this is actually a good thing, because we're looking for a funeral, and what God wants to give us is a wedding, we're looking for Jesus' dead body, and we're looking for his dead body for different reasons. Maybe we want to prove that, that he's not who he says he is, so we can go on and, and not have to believe him. We struggle to believe. We're looking for Je Jesus' dead body, and instead he gives us his resurrected body. And sometimes in our weakness, we, we demand of Jesus certain things in order for us to be able to believe. And sometimes he'll give us those things, like he does with Thomas. Thomas says, I, I can't believe unless I, I see and stick my finger in the, in the nail marks, unless I put my hand into his side and Jesus comes and what does he do? Here, stick your fingers in. Put your hand on my side. Thomas makes a demand and Jesus says, okay, I'll give it to you. We're not even told that Thomas actually does that. We're just told that he says, my Lord and my God, that he believes. Oftentimes, Jesus will help us to see that what we thought we needed really wasn't what we needed. That what we wanted Jesus to be or to do for us really wasn't the best thing, really wasn't the appropriate thing. We're all seeking something. The question is, are we seeking Jesus? Are we seeking the real Jesus, the risen Lord Jesus? Because he's always calling our name. He's always pursuing us. And the challenge this morning is to lay down our preconceived notions and assumptions about who Jesus is or who you want him to be or who you feel like you need him to be for, him, for you and allow Jesus to be who he is. Which, by the way, is so much better than any Jesus that you could dream of. Who are you seeking? And then finally, Jesus says to Thomas in verse 27, do not disbelieve, but believe. That's the final point. Do not disbelieve, but believe. In verses 30 to 31, which finish off this chapter, John writes this. He says, now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book. But these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing, you may have life in his name. 
So the point isn't that you have to fit into one of these categories, either Thomas or Mary or Peter or John. You don't have to be like them or or follow their example. The the point is that you must be yourself. And when I say that, I'm I'm not saying you do you. Go be whatever you want to be. The point is that you must be yourself, and the best possible version of you is the one who trusts in Jesus and has life in his name. Because that's who Jesus made us to be. And when we trust in Jesus, he transforms us into the best possible version of ourselves. So, will you believe? That's the question I leave you with this morning. If you need someone to pray with this morning, I'd encourage you to to drop into the prayer room and uh, someone will be there to talk with you and pray with you. Otherwise, I'd love to pray with you right now. Would you pray with me? Our Father, we're grateful that you have done this amazing work from the foundation of the world. You planned for your son to be born, to live a perfect life, to, to suffer and die on the cross, to be buried, and on the third day to rise again. This did not surprise you. And In all those events, Lord, you have given us life, you have given us hope, you have given us redemption, and we Pray, Lord, that we would find joy in the risen Lord today. Jesus, would you, would you give us joy in life and reflect your life in the way that we live as we leave this room? God, would we not come looking to put together a Jesus that meets all of our needs and makes us feel good about ourselves, but the Jesus who really is the risen Lord King and King of the universe? And Father, when our hearts struggle to believe, as many I'm sure are this morning, skeptical or doubtful or doubting their own worth, Lord, would you just continue to speak their name? And I pray that you break through and that some even this morning, Lord, would hear you speaking their name personally, lovingly, intimately, maybe for the first time. Lord, help us to believe. We want to believe. Help our unbelief. We pray this all in your name. Amen.